I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to All The Small Things with me, Venetia. Before we dive in, here's a quick message. I'm delighted to tell you about one of my favorite ethical jewelry brands, Lovenessly. Lovenessly is an independent London-based company creating beautiful handcrafted pieces inspired by and working to protect nature. All their designs are made in small batches to avoid waste using locally sourced materials such as recycled sterling silver from Scotland, lab-grown gems, and they even have an aftercare program to ensure a long life for every piece they produce. Perfect for gifts, the Alphabet Collection is great for something personal, with abstract letter earrings and pendants. If you follow me on social media, you probably see me wearing my V initial earrings, which I'm obsessed with. They're abstract and full of texture, reflecting how they're cast from nature. I think Lovenessly would make a pretty spectacular gift for Valentine's Day, either for a loved one or for yourself. So why not keep it local with handcrafted designs created by a team who love what they do? I have an exclusive 20% off discount code for my podcast listeners running throughout the month of February. Just head to lovenessly.com and use code smallthings20 at checkout, or you can visit their London South Bank store where you can see each piece being made from start to finish and use the code in person. That's lovenessly.com and code smallthings20. Today's conversation is with Josephine Phillips, who is the charismatic, effervescent and brilliant young CEO behind Sojo, a seamless and scalable clothing alterations and repairs app on a mission to make the fashion industry more circular. As you might have heard in last week's episode with the All Foundation's Liz Ricketts and a previous episode with their programs manager, Chloe Assam, you'll know that the fashion industry has a waste problem. Enter Joe's solution, Sojo. They want to make it easy for everyone to show their clothes the love that they deserve. And they do this through alteration and repair of clothing, allowing more of us to love our clothes for longer. In this episode with Joe, we learn how a Gen Z CEO starts their day, how it was feminism that brought this budding entrepreneur to sustainable fashion, how she built Sojo and raised $2.4 million in pre-seed funding, how Sojo were aiming to democratize sustainable fashion and much more. It will soon be highly evident, but I truly loved having this conversation with Joe, and I really hope you enjoy the episode. Joe, welcome to the podcast. I feel like this has been the longest time coming. I'm so excited to have you here. Let's start as we always do on this show. I would love to hear if you have any morning rituals or habits that you'd like to start your day with. Firstly, thank you for having me, Venetia. Super excited to be here. OG fan. We stand, Venetia. Um, my morning habits, controversial, and it's going to scare off the audience. I'm up at five every day. I absolutely love the morning. <laughs> I love it so much. And it's when I'm the most productive. I get up and then really terribly pull my laptop into bed when the alarm goes off and start work, which is the toxic bit of my morning. But then one thing that I have been doing really, really, really powerful and quite game changing is I write gratitude in the morning before I leave the house. 
it's something that I've heard a lot of people do, uh, but not until I started therapy and perspective became the foundation of happiness. It really is something that, yeah, is really powerful and changes my day. Firstly, such good insight into how a CEO lives. But also, I think there's something about that time of the day where you feel like no one else is up and able to respond to your emails really quickly that just feels so much more peaceful, right? It's the most incredible time because when you get started, the amount of distractions of life, like it can be anything. It can be someone asking a quick question, you getting an email, you getting a call. Life and existence starts happening. It might even be that my parents call or my sister asks for something. Those three hours from five till eight that I'm in my bed and I'm working, silence, radio silence. It's me and my deep work. And it's it's the best time of my day, 100%. Also on the gratitude I don't know if you have this, but something I've really noticed recently is I wake up with like a lot of noise and sometimes negativity in my head. I put my gratitude journal to the left of my bed. I literally lean over, write three things I'm grateful for or looking forward to that day. And suddenly I just feel so much calmer. So that's like my way to decompress, but it's so helpful, isn't it? I honestly wasn't a believer before. I think until you're a convert, you think it's I don't want to use the term wishy-washy, but like you don't understand the gravitas of gratitude and how it shifts your life. Um, So yeah, it starts me off in the right way, but also not talking about the actual day, talking about holistically how it then makes me feel about life and actions and things happening, always bringing perspective and gratitude to it um, just means like a state of happiness is so much more achievable. I love that. So before we dive into your app, Sojo, I'm wondering what your relationship with clothes and fashion was like when you were growing up. As a Gen Z, do you remember a time without fast fashion? No. I don't actually. I don't even want to say the the names, but like we're talking me being an 11-year-old girl going to Primark. It's just what I did. And unfortunately, that went on way too long. And as we always say, fast fashion, hypocrite, recovering, addict, all of that kind of thing. That was me. And it was because we are totally blinded to the realities of it. I don't blame what happened or who I was at all in the same way I don't blame people who are now still partaking in it when they are unaware of what fast fashion industry means. There is such an opaque nature to the sector. But yeah, in terms of where I was at, it was a fast fashion teenage obsession, much like all of my peers and the sort of sector as a whole. So when did that start to change and how did it kind of first shift and and materialize in maybe your headspace and then also how you consumed clothes as well I went through a difficult period in my sixth form I joined this school that was only boys until sixth form and then they let girls in but they let girls in in horrific ratio of 240 boys and 40 girls I mean it was like horrific anyway point being is in that time I became an ardent feminist like I got hardened I started exploring feminism in all facets of my life and I became aware of how exploitative the fast fashion industry is to women you have obviously spoken about it loads before and it's sort of a a massive pillar of what you talk about but for me at that time I was so blissfully unaware and what's really toxic is you're there in the west as a feminist you know donning your I'm a feminist t-shirt and it's very likely made in an exploitative way uh, by women of color in the global south and I didn't know that and when I found it out I was like how am I preaching and deeply connecting with this movement when my money is funding white male billionaires at the exploitation of these other women who I meant to align myself with and who I deeply want to support. And so I basically, at that period and that time and moving into university, entirely quit fast fashion and moved to 
consume secondhand clothes just as much. <laughs> when it comes to feminist fashion, the issue of garment makers who are predominantly women, women of color being exploited is a huge, huge issue. And this year, I've been thinking a lot about how women in the global north who buy fast fashion are also being exploited without realizing, mm. right? And when I see young girls who kind of remind me of myself when I was younger doing fast fashion hauls, and these are girls, you know, with a fair amount of privilege, you know, straight sized, etc. It just makes me really sad because I'm like, I was you, I know how you feel. Mm. And I wish that you could see that you two are being exploited. And also the pockets you're filling are the pockets of these like horrendous, predominantly white men or CEOs who don't care about you. I absolutely love that you've made that point because where I am now in my relationship to fashion, despite the fact that fast fashion or buying new clothing is stereotypically associated with happiness or fast happiness or endorphins or an endorphin rush or endorphin hit, actually the happiness that you find external to that by quitting fast fashion is what you're being stripped of when you're being pushed consumerism. And like when consumption and consumerism is the center of your happiness, that's not true happiness. And you don't realize that until you do find true happiness in so many different ways that are a lot more authentic and that are very much learned from the past or from other communities who deeply understand that that's where life comes from and community and connection and happiness comes from what you're getting from that hall and how that feels and how you're performing and how you're doing the video and how it's never enough and you'll never find that happiness from that and I think you making that point about how that's exploitation in and of itself and the system is exploiting us all yeah that resonates really intensely with me one of the really interesting things there is how do we communicate that to young women especially? Because it's no coincidence that you came to fashion through feminism and through kind of anger at the system and thinking about like different, I guess, systems of oppression and feeling like you were being exploited in some way. And for me, I think it's no coincidence that it came when I like was getting more into meditation and kind of slowing mm. down and also getting older. Mm. But I think there's lots to think about in terms of like how can we communicate that to people in in different ways. I would say a stepping stone for it, which is like the first stepping stone into sustainable fashion and connecting that to happiness is that personal style piece that naturally brings a slowing down of buying because you're not being pulled into trends. And also you can still be buying fast fashion and you're just looking for your personal style, but immediately you're thinking about your purchases more. You're thinking about what works for you. And if you are buying from fast fashion associated with your personal style, your deep intrinsic personal style, what materials, shapes, colors do you repeatedly wear and work for you? you are actually going to have a lot more item longevity from those items anyway. And then you're on a path. Like obviously then we'll move away from fast fashion. And there's so many other ways to consume or not consume at all. But I think that's a really strong stepping stone because that happiness is actually immediate. So when you're shopping from that fast fashion brand and you're going to buy into the trend and then you stop and you think, what works for me? What, what materials do I like on my body? The way that they sit and the comfort level and what works well in terms of my color and my shape. And then you buy that item you will feel good every time you're wearing it and you'll keep coming back to it. So that's always my first stepping stone of what I say to people. That is such, such strong advice. It makes me want to go old school, start creating collages, mm. mood boards of, of the style. Pinterest, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about your entry point into setting up Sojo. Have you always been entrepreneurial? Did you always see yourself as someone who could be a CEO? Where does this stem from? 
I did indeed. And I think this is where it really comes into like, you cannot be what you cannot see energy. Uh, my dad has his own business. That representation um, was really important, but it goes beyond my dad having his own business. It goes into the fact that my dad's a black man who came over in my grandma's belly from Sierra Leone in the 60s. And he grew up in 60s and 70s London. And obviously where they were starting out wasn't where I am privileged enough to say I am today. And that is enabled by him taking his own initiative, taking control of his fate and essentially creating what he wanted to create for him. And that is something that has been a massive inspiration and also being able to watch him and see how he's able to create a life where he's been the most incredible father anyone could ever ask for in terms of taking holidays when he wants and being there to be there when we come home from school every single day because he always worked from home. You know, all of those kinds of things. Inspiration, 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 inspiration. And it must have just by osmosis gone into me. I also think there's something to be said for it being a little bit of a genetic thing. I think some people are a bit more predisposed to starting a business and it's why they're five years old and running a lemonade stand. Or I think I always had that gene and was always doing things. I started a few different things before Sojo, which we won't go into because like when you start stuff when you're young, it's always just a lot more embarrassing. And then, yeah, obviously my parents also really instilled in me what actually has come across now as reasonably like masculine tendencies around like you can go for what you want to go for and you can be anything. And if you wanted to be prime minister, you could be. And like that kind of affirmation when I was growing up is incredibly powerful because it means that kind of confidence of, of being able to believe that you can do something is actually a massive enabler in you being able to do that. I love that so much. What incredible parents. They sound awesome. Another reason for me to get more obsessed with your family members. Um <laughs> So let us talk about your alterations app, Sojo. It's on a mission to make fashion circular. It initially launched as a kind of delivery, but for clothing repairs. So talk to us about Sojo. When did you come up with the idea for it? And how did you go about creating it? I had the idea during university. As I spoke to earlier, I moved from consuming first-hand clothes to consuming second-hand clothes. And the idea came about because secondhand clothes come in one size. That's it. You found a gem. You found a vintage, great, amazing secondhand gem. Great quality, great style, great price. Like you love it. What are the chances? It's your exact measurements. I just realized that if the secondhand market is growing the way that it was then, which Depop was taking off and people were really starting to pay attention to secondhand, if that's going to grow, there needs to be some sort of sizing solution because otherwise it's like there's a huge friction. But when I went to get something tailored for the first time, I didn't know where to go, who to go to, what they were like, if I could trust them. When I did, it was me getting dressed behind like a little plastic curtain didn't feel that comfortable. It was cash only. I didn't have any cash. It's incredibly inconvenient for that to happen. It was come back in five days and I didn't go back for two months because it sits on your to-do list and you never get around to going to do it. It was just really fragmented. It, it wasn't something that was made for the modern day. And I couldn't believe that actually the process was identical to it was when it was in the 1800s, like literally unchanged. Really, I was like, if we want to get young people engaging with a circular fashion behavior, which is tailoring and repairing your clothing, but ultimately they don't know how to sew. And so it was really like, how can we enable them to access this behavior in a really simple way? And the idea for Sojo was born and the rest is history. Amazing. So how did you go from having the idea to setting up the business? This is actually like a really, really crucial part of Sojo's journey because it's something I talk to a lot of founders about because you can have a great idea where you're like, mm, I would love this. Um, but there's this book called The Mum Test. And it basically says that if you go to your mum and you say, mum, you're always cooking. Sorry for the stereotype. Mum, you're always cooking. Wouldn't you love it if there was an app 
where each day you got a new recipe and like that could be something you cook and she'd be like oh my god like that's so great that's so interesting yeah I'd love that whereas actually the right thing to do when you have an idea that you think is good is go to your mum and say mum when was the last time you used a recipe mum when was the last time you downloaded an app and the answers to those questions will tell you she is not your target customer you will not have an audience for it because those people who you believe your target customer are never going to use the app because the last time she downloaded an app was never she has the same three apps that she always uses she's not looking on the app store for new apps so anyway the point being is that I read this book, The Mum Test, which was recommended by my university. And I went and surveyed over 300 people with mum test proof questions, which said, do you know how to sew? Do you shop secondhand? Do you have issues with sizing? When was the last time you went to a tailor? And basically the answers to all those questions from all those people is meant to one plus one plus one plus one equals your startup idea. And that really validated it for me. And then I went from that to the next step of the entrepreneur journey is do not code anything until you validate it again with a no code solution. And we did a Google Forms where we put it out on Instagram saying, does anyone want anything done? And this is a lovely little beautiful anecdote for us to say on the podcast, which is Venetia Lamana was one of our Google Form respondents saying, yeah, 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 I got stuff that I want tailored and repaired. And that meant that this Google Forms I created just to test out whether people would use us and I would pick it up and drop it off and see if the tailor would give us commission. We had someone in the sustainable fashion space, I want to say someone, influencer, queen, you know, whatever word you want to use, use us as part of that Google Forms and then tell her followers about it. And that got a lot of traction and it really validated the fact that like we were working, people wanted to use us. I knew this was a solution. People were willing to pay for it. Seamsters were willing to give us a commission for it. And then I decided to put my savings into getting an engineer to actually build the beta version. And that's the kind of step-by-step process that you maybe need to go to if you have an idea where you think, oh, that's good. It's like there's a lot of validation and testing that comes before you should actually put any money behind it whatsoever. Wow. So helpful for other budding CEOs listening to this podcast. How much money did you put into it initially? Um, I put an eight grand into Sojo at the beginning and that was savings from selling on Depop during university and I was waitressing before and during university and I did some tutoring as well. So I'd save some money, put that into Sojo entirely only on developer costs. I mean, at that stage, everything else was done by me. And then also we were really lucky to get a couple of grants, four grand from a university grant. And then we got five grand from the mayor of London's entrepreneur competition. So I was like basically applying for grants, trying to get some money and backing of the idea, which they have for early stage female London-based founders. Um, So definitely look into those. And in total, I think pre sort of any other funding, it was about, yeah, 12, 16 grand in total, something like that. And so from then you launched the app and presumably you got people signing up and using it. What were the kind of initial realizations that you had straight after launching it? And how long was it before you kind of perhaps rethought the app? Yeah, so we launched and it was an incredibly exciting time. The fact that people were using it from day one, and I think it was in like the first 24 hours, we got like a thousand downloads or something. It was just like, it was so exciting just to have like a reception that was immediate. And I then actually think I got a little bit lost on the treadmill of running the day to day that there were no notions of like, how are we going to grow this? Or how am I going to expand what we're doing? The orders were coming in and therefore needed to be fulfilled. And and that became the day to day management piece that there weren't any strategic 
strategic pieces. And, and that kind of feeds into the fact that as I was there on the treadmill trying to run everything and keep it going and we were getting press and things were going good, we had inbounds from investors and they were like, what are you doing? What are you building? And I was like, I'm not interested in investment um, because <laughs> I was just like, I don't, I'm not interested in white men. So that, that was kind of the, the MO, but basically realized and, and sort of came across a lot of incredible diverse investors who really believed in what I was doing and me, which I was very surprised at because I just had such a skeptical view of the world and landscape investment. And then realized that if I wanted to take it to any other form of another level, we wanted to take on a little bit of investment last year, angel investment, which is where individuals put in their money as opposed to sort of venture capital funds. And that meant that we really rethought what the future of Soja would look like. And in that time as well, we'd also had like inbounds from brands who were talking about how they could embed more circularity into their business model. And I was thinking about what that might look like for the future of Sojo and what that would enable when it came to sort of impact and scale. And so there are many questions, but ultimately got a little bit of funding, managed to then hire a couple of people. My wonderful engineer who'd been working on Sojo, you know, from the beginning, I was able to hire him, which was super exciting. And then it's kind of, yeah, gone from there and we've we've developed a bit in terms of what we're doing and how we're focusing on things and we've also raised a bit more money when you say a bit more money understatement of the century um (laughs) earlier this year in 2022 you raised 2.4 million dollars in pre-seed funding which is the earliest stage of funding for a company i had to uh type that into a search bar because i'm a complete (laughs) novice with this stuff 2.4 million dollars with backers including the founder of depop simon beckerman Huge congratulations. That is such an achievement. It's huge. And also what's quite funny is like when you're pitching for it, it's all hypothetical. And then like it hits your bank account and you're like, wait, what? (laughs) What does $2.4 million mean for a company like Sojo? And how do you go about using that money to develop the business? Yep. So to give a bit of an insight into the startup landscape, that money is stereotypically meant to last your company about 12 to 18 months. So you have 12 to 18 months to spend the entire thing. And then you should be raising another round of funding, which may look like somewhere between six and 10 million or more, depending on where you're at in terms of uh, success. And then you that's meant to last another 12 to 18 months and then you're meant to raise 50 million it goes on and on so like when when I finished my fundraise and it was an incredibly incredibly stressful time of my life my sister was like god I'm so glad that's over and I was like no no now the real work begins we've got 18 months to deploy this money to grow a massive amount and then I'm going to do this again but I'm going to do it five times bigger this is a system. This is how venture capital and startups work. And in terms of what we're going to use it for, the main thing is team, 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 team. Um, so really excitingly, we're going to be a team of 12 people, um, which feels incredible. And that is developing different verticals of Sojo from in-housing our operations to building out an amazing brand. We're rebranding and relaunching um, to you know our product, our engineering team, to our commercial team and the brand partnerships. We've now got people all over the shop basically pushing forward in their vertical at Sojo and what that hopefully means is we'll be able to grow massively um, whether that be in terms of order volume or impact or geographical location and so I'm yeah I'm really excited for the next 18 months. We are just getting started so currently (laughs) where are you uh, location wise in the UK? We're just in London That's something that I thought I'd move quicker on in terms of being like, we can grow as much as possible. But actually, we need to create the perfect 
operational structure here in London to then replicate. And actually replicating the thing that doesn't quite work is a really wrong thing to do. So despite the fact that when I launched, I was like, we need to grow it into the next few cities ASAP. It's actually about getting it really, really right. And then the moment you've got like something that can be plug and played everywhere else, it will probably be that we're like in London and then it will end up being that we grow very quickly after we've got it perfect here. That makes perfect sense. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So since launching, you have partnered with big brands like vintage clothing store Beyond Retro and Copenhagen-based contemporary fashion brand that you might have heard of called Ganny. Tell me the direction that you see the business going in, because obviously there I've mentioned two really great brands. One is a vintage brand, the other is not perfect, but very transparent about their kind of sustainability credentials and where they see the business going. And I know you are someone who is like very ethically minded and like you care deeply. So where do you see the future of Sojo going? And also does your code of ethics, you know, your personal code of ethics ever kind of get in the way a little bit? There's definitely been a lot of thought that's gone into what we're doing, why we're doing it and what the future and impact means. And I think we've kind of settled on two really key things. The first is clothes that fit well and last a long time. That's our pillar. Also, the second thing is returns in fashion are hugely problematic, but totally underserved in terms of a solution there. And what that means actually is it's like over 30 billion kgs of CO2 globally happening because of fashion returns going all over the world, being reshipped and shipped and reshipped and shipped and all that kind of thing. And fashion return rates for brands can be as high as 50, 60, 70%. When you're selling hundreds of thousands of items a day, that is so many returns and so much repackaging. And sometimes those items aren't actually being resold. And so there's this sentiment that Sojo is now thinking about, which is given the fact that 54% of returns are due to poor fit, how can we actually access those customers to get those clothes to fit them better so that that return isn't making its way to a fulfillment center in Europe or a fulfillment center in the US or isn't being repackaged? And how can we ensure that those clothes fit that customer well and last a really long time? And I think what our package now is, and the reason we're approaching it through a B2B lens is thinking about scale. So 
accessing customers that are already there and changing the way they think about clothing is kind of the MO of what we're approaching with Sojo. So we want to get customers to try tailoring for the first time. We want them to understand that after something's been bought, there is a life that needs to be lived in that clothing. It needs to fit you well. It needs to change with your body shape if you change. It needs to be repaired if it's broken. And so the way that we're going to approach our existence in this fashion landscape is like in a really sort of like mass market way, we want to get everyone to think about tailoring and repair. Notions around ethics and what brands I would and wouldn't partner with were really difficult because like there's this whole blanket of what I wouldn't partner with. And then thinking about how those customers need to be taught about caring for clothes after they've been bought and need to be taught about slow fashion. And also those clothes are the most likely to be thrown away and those clothes are the most likely to break and the most likely to need repair. I then basically decided that clothes being tailored and fitting you well and changing with you and clothes that need to be repaired and can be repaired in a really great way that maybe is free because the brand's paying for it. That should be something for every item of clothing. I'm not discriminating based on what a brand is or isn't doing. The fundamental thing is we believe in clothes fitting someone really well and lasting a long time and teaching people about change and teaching people about slow fashion. That was with all people and all clothing. So whatever age, whatever bracket, whatever market, whatever gender, we want to service them with those two foundations of what we think is like slow fashion. Absolutely adore that. It seems like you are now so clear on those foundational pillars, which is just awesome to see. But also what you've just described, it sounds like truly democratic, accessible fashion. And I had an amazing digital creator who writes for Vogue called Marielle Elizabeth on the podcast recently, who mainly talks about plus size fashion and accessibility. And if one thing is so clear, it's that we need fashion in whatever form to feel like it is for everyone. And especially we need the sustainable solutions to feel like they are for everyone and accessible to everyone. And meanwhile, while you're doing this amazing, important work with Sojo, I feel like you can rest assured that there are lots of people trying to get legislation through, which means that garment makers are going to be earning fair living wages and we're putting caps on the amount of clothing that fast fashion is producing and big fashion, not letting luxury off the hook here, are producing in the first place. We have to kind of potentially zoom out a little bit and think, what are we all doing as individuals, brands, corporations, consumers, campaigners, whatever it is that we are, and think of it as a kind of collective action. But I I think what you've described sounds awesome. I'm so glad you said that as well about the legislation, because from my mind, it's been contending also thinking like, how do we fit in when there is like grassroots activism happening? That is something that also like my nature would be pulled towards. But actually, it's like everyone's got a pillar. Everyone's feeding into the system, trying to get brands to change from the inside, trying to get consumers to change. Like ultimately, like the vision is really that a customer uses us via a brand to just shorten their trousers. That's it. They wanted their trousers to be a bit shorter. Then they are part of our CRM. They are part of our newsletter list, which hopefully develops into getting them to think differently about clothing. And they're part of that. We're here to care for your clothes. And do you know what that means? And let's teach you about it. And it's not as obvious, but it's really like foundational. And I think that that is a that is an approach where we're coming at it from the brand piece, but we've got that consumer piece and we want to help funnel into a legislative piece. And we want to sort of be a part of that. It's like there's there's so many pillars in the same way when people say like the future of fashion is 
enter a word. I don't believe it's any one thing. It's a combination of all the different approaches that we can bring to clothing. It's not the future of fashion is renting it or the future of fashion is resale. There are so many ways to think about clothing. And fundamentally, like a really strong pillar of what Sojo believes is like slowing down consumption. And that is why you're tailoring that piece because you're not wearing it once and throwing it away. And and I think that will just like embed itself in the psyche of a lot of people who end up using us and, and hopefully becoming converts of approaching their clothes in this way. I'm assuming you have a lot of conversations and meetings with an array of different brands, including fast fashion brands. I think a lot and research a lot about their sustainability pages on their website and how they say a lot, but they don't really mean much. And they just seem like they're all saying the same thing. And it's just an add on. How does that differ to Sojo's model? It's kind of funny because we were just like redesigning our website at the moment and just even the conversation of thinking like, do we have a sustainability paragraph? And it's like, no, no, the entire embedding of our service and website and existence and all the things we're talking about is about circular and slowing down fashion. And it's like, again, I just, I'm ready for the move from brands to come away from like that paragraph or that team or that budget to like move into just the whole ether of the brand and the way they think about business as a whole. That is so, so fascinating. And I'm sure you'll be inspiring them in a multitude of ways. I'd like to talk about the challenges of being a CEO and also a black woman. Only 15% of CEOs in Fortune 500 companies are women, with only 1.2% of these companies being helmed by a black person. That's a stat from the World Economic Forum. What are the hurdles of being at this intersection and trying to build a financially viable business? There's two halves of this, like the being the CEO piece was so hard, so, so hard to start a business and try and run it every single day. Like every day is a learning, even what's so exciting about having these new team members start, you know, there's a lot of inadequacy that comes from inexperience that you have to overcome. There's so much learning, growth brings learning investors, brands commercially. There's just so many things to think about and coming straight out of university It's definitely been a challenge and there's like a lot of weight that comes with that. And then on the other side, obviously, like being in spaces and rooms where you're often the only one and or even just like the the sort of back foot energy of going into investment pitches. And like, I think one thing that I've said previously is like their model of a successful CEO just doesn't look like this. And so it's very difficult to innately believe that this is going to be the next billion dollar company they want to back. I think that's like where we're getting into sort of like that unconscious bias piece. But even just like as the camera comes on and I'm sort of like there to be like, hey, like I'm going to be pitching. I'm already like, wow, like I know they're going to they're going to see this and then immediately have that like deep rooted thing. And then there's a whole other part of dynamic of some experiences during fundraising, which are less unconscious and more just like (laughs) conscious. I'm sorry to hear that. My mindset has really been shifting outside of the fundraise in a really positive way. Like I'm so lucky to be backed by like the Google Black Founders Fund. And I'm really lucky to get really great mentorship and support from some incredible black investors. And there are so many women's networks like the Stack World, which are incredibly supportive specifically of female founders. And like, I just think that the reframing since the fundraise and since, you know, we then have the money in the end. So like all of that drama is over. It's really like just seeing it as a superpower of like no one understands the market like I do, because I think I came into it as a young Gen Z sustainable fashion enthusiast and a guy who was 50 and white male who'd started four businesses before never could have done this in the way that I have. So I think it's just like flipping it and looking at it as a superpower. And also, I know we were joking about it before, Venetia, but trying to approach all the failures with me being a CEO with a kind of 
relaxed journey attitude of just being like, it's going to be what it's going to be. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to learn as much as I can. But this pressure that I'm putting on myself isn't helpful for anyone. I can imagine that that space you have created for yourself and also that has partially come to you because I know a lot of people have come to you with your mentors and your investors and your sister, your family, your co-workers. I'm imagining that that kind of safe space probably feels very nourishing to you. And I'm imagining that that is the thing that kind of keeps you grounded, keeps you feeling positive and keeps you kind of pushing on during those less easy times. It is truly quite pivotal to have support in that way. Um, And I think there was an issue of opening myself to asking for it, particularly with some help that was offered at the beginning. I was just so like, I can do this. Like, I don't need investment. I don't need help. I don't need support. I don't need a team. All of that kind of ridiculousness. Now I'm totally different in my attitude and like, honestly, like coming home from fundraising or having a really bad day and my sister being able to like have made dinner for me. I mean, she jokes about how our relationship is like a 1950s marriage. (laughs) I'll like come home like super stressed, be like, where's dinner? And like, she'll have cooked because she loves cooking and she's freeze rigid and wonderful. And then I'll eat and I'll be like, I'm going to bed. I'm sorry. I'm just so stressed with work. And she'll be like, what about conversation? And I'll be like, good night. And I'll go up. And then also she's recently got a dog and she was like, can can we like share the dog? And I was like, "Mm, I don't really want a dog, but I'll be a financial contributor seeing as I'll benefit because the pup will be there. So she looks after the dog and I pay for half its food. And that's my contribution <laughs> very male CEO from the 50s energy and it's quite fun but yeah she supports me and so do so many other people and it's pivotal I would never be here without it I remember you came to my front door on your bike um, <laughs> to pick up my alterations when you first started but collaboration is so key you know that mm. especially as women we're like I can do everything especially now I'm multi-hyphen I can do it all but we don't have to <laughs> no we don't have to and also as much as I have you know, conceptualize this thing. And I definitely have my strengths. When I find someone in operations to run operations, who's been in operations, they are a million times better than me coming out of uni and figuring out operations at the same time as figuring out everything else. And someone who's been a brand marketeer for 10 years is going to be exceptional. Every one of my team members are so much superior than me at everything they're doing. And I may be like that glue in the middle that sticks it all together, which is fine. But fundamentally, do you know the level that's going to take your company or business to hand over and to entrust that you are not the be all and end all of what is good and that people are out there who are exceptional and you just need to get them on board. Um, absolutely game changing. I cannot wait to see where we go and what we do, because if we were there with just kind of like me and the help of, you know, my amazing engineer, think about where we could be with funding and with 12 experts in each of their fields and where we're going to get to. It's, it's just really, I'm just, I'm so excited. I'm so excited for you. I'm just going to be watching from the sidelines cheering you on. I'm I'm really, really <laughs> excited for you. I also need to make a caveat of this whole podcast, which is I'm coming across as in a great place, which I am, but also you're catching me on such a good day. So everything seems really like I've got it all together and I've got the support network and it's all fine and the team's going to be amazing and I'm feeling really happy and I write my gratitudes. Whereas catch me on a bad day, <laughs> it's not always like this because I feel like actually people are maybe going to listen and be like, wow, like not only is the company going like that, but she's also got it all together and everything. It gets bad. It's really tough. There are hard days, hard weeks, hard months. And it's just important to say that because otherwise, otherwise you're just perpetuating a lie. Some of the days are just like eating glass. But what's really crazy is like you can be so stressed, you can hate it so much. But if you were to go away for a week or two, all you'd want to do is be back in it. As much as it can be stressful, there's no other thing. 
I think it's always important for us to remember that we never know how difficult it is. We never know what people are going through. Hey, how would you feel about a quick fire round? <gasps> Let's go. Quick fire with Joe. Wake up early or have a lion? Early, early, early. Tea or coffee? Neither. Just water. TikTok or Instagram? Instagram. Don't have TikTok because I think I'm too old. <laughs> I just rolled my eyes. <laughs> physics or philosophy? Oh, wow. Such a good one. Um, physics. It was my major and um, I massively fancied my physics teacher. Pinstripe <laughs> or linen suits? Ooh. Oh, my goodness. Um, linen. I love how linen feels. Clothes or musical theatre? Musical theatre, always. Moulin Rouge or West Side Story? West Side Story. Autumn, winter or spring, summer dressing? Every time. Summer. Summer, summer, summer. She's a summer gal. Crocs or Birkenstocks? Birkenstocks. Sadly, haven't gotten that croc trend. Charity shops or car boot sales? Charity shops. Vintage shops or resale apps? Oh, that's such a hard one. Uh, resale apps. Fiction or non-fiction? Non-fiction. Every day. Podcasts or TV series? Oh God. Depends. Business, podcasts, fun, TV series. Sunrise or sunset? Am I allowed to say both? Please yes. let me yes. say both. Yeah. And finally, routine or spontaneity? Spontaneity, but wish I was a routine girl. You strike me as a routine girl. The 5am wake ups. Okay. That's, that's a routine. That is a routine. But like my life after that 5am to 8am, honestly, absolute chaos. Like I'm all over the place. So those three hours are my haven. Final question. What is one thing you hope your older self will have achieved? It's a bit broad. The answer is to make a positive impact, which is very, could be considered wishy-washy. But for me, that looks like a lot of different things. It may look like Sojo and the impact in this space in the fashion industry. It may look like my next startup, which is an idea that is a different sector that needs to be changed for the better. It may be investing in black founders if I'm able to and changing community and changing what they're doing. There's loads of different ways that that can look. And all I want to know is when I get to that stage, I can be like, I had a really significant positive impact, not in a way that was in my one bubble of world, but actually that really made sort of like game changing um, industry wide sector shaking impact. I have a good feeling that that's going to come to fruition. (laughs) I'm so grateful, Josephine, for you coming on this podcast. I feel like it's been a long time end. coming. We'll, we can <laughs> continue the chat. I know. Gotta get to my day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're new to all the small things, I will leave some recommended related episodes in the show notes for you to enjoy. If you have a spare moment, please do share this conversation with a friend who you think might enjoy it or on your Instagram stories or better yet, please leave me a five-star review on your podcast player. I will see you back here next week, same time, same place. And in the meantime, I'm wishing you the best possible day. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.